You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Today, in several states, there's a furious debate going on about the so-called voucher issue. That is, whether governments making cash grants to low-income parents for tuition at any private school of their choice should include religious schools. Separation of church and state is the loud cry of opponents of this. For the past half century, that cry has had so growing an effect of separating religion from public life that Richard John Newhouse felt compelled to write his now famous book, The Naked Public Square. Major pressure groups have accustomed many American minds to the notion of the absolute separation, not only of church and state, but of religion from public life. We saw in our first session that the America of the years before 1947 was one in which religion was widely acknowledged in our public life. We should understand that this acknowledgement embraced the use of public funds in support of the Protestant-oriented public school, often with prayer, Bible reading, religiously related baccalaureates, the acknowledgement of the Ten Commandments, and the moral code derived from them. Well, that was logical. We were a nation of certainly an earlier Protestantism. It did not welcome the boatloads of poverty-stricken Irish, which began arriving in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia around 1820, as the common or public schools embraced Protestant observances. The Catholic bishops, by the mid-19th century, were thoroughly alarmed at what they felt were dangers to Catholic children, which they believed were posed by their attendance at public schools. A pastoral at that time had these words, prophetic even to our times. It said, if the great truths of religion be not deeply inculcated upon youthful minds, your discourses, that means that of the bishops, will be scarcely intelligible to those who will have been left untaught. Continued attendance at public school, a later report, again prophetic, from the Diocese of Baltimore warned, makes Catholic children ashamed of their faith, and it is morally impossible that their faith should not be weakened. Hence, after 1840, the Catholic bishops began founding Catholic schools and they sought the inclusion of these in state educational funding. Reaction set in very heavily. In 1855, Massachusetts revised its constitution to bar aid to religious schools. The impulse was notoriously anti-Catholic. In time, similar provisions in state constitutions became widespread. In 1875, the attempt was made to similarly amend the Constitution of the United States. That failed, but the exclusions in state constitutions assured the continuance into the future both of Catholic demands for inclusion 
and the essentially Protestant resistance to those demands. The chain of exclusion, long after, but temporarily, was partly broken as World War II was ending, when the nation adopted the GI Bill of Rights. This did not subsidize elementary or secondary school education, but it did pay tuition and fees of individual veterans in institutions of higher education, institutions of their choice. But the rationale of exclusion was upended since veterans were enabled to attend 474 Protestant, 265 Catholic, and five Jewish institutions of higher learning at taxpayers' expense. Well, that brings me to Mr. Archie Everson. Mr. Everson had become deeply exercised over a law enacted by New Jersey authorizing public school districts to provide for the transportation of children attending public schools and also for those attending nonprofit non-public schools. Now a local public school district followed through on this statute by making cash payments to parents of children attending both kinds of schools to reimburse them for the fares that parents had paid to the public transportation system for carrying their children to schools. Among these were some parents whose kids attended Catholic schools. Archie Everson went to state court to challenge this. He said he sued as a taxpayer whose tax money was being spent for private purposes, which would be illegal if true. He also said that it was being spent for religious purposes, and the latter, he said, violated the Establishment Clause of the U.S. Constitution. The ACLU and like organizations joined with him. The case came to the Supreme Court of the United States. The court said the school district was right and that Mr. Everson was wrong. The court's opinion, written by Mr. Justice Hugo Black, created tremendous excitement nationally. Here's why. Black quickly disposed of the argument that the statute did not serve a public purpose. Getting children safely to school was the serving of a public purpose, period. But if the school was a religious school, how about that? Using state money to help kids become religiously indoctrinated? Wasn't Mr. Everson's claim correct that that would violate the Establishment Clause as being public support of religion? This claim triggered a long essay by Black on just what he thought the Establishment Clause means. He said it meant not only that neither a state nor the federal government could set up a church or prefer one religion over another, but that no tax in any amount may be levied to support any religious activities or institutions. He wound up his essay by quoting words of Thomas Jefferson that the clause was intended to erect a wall of separation between church and state. That wall of separation phrase now became the rallying cry which would be sounded louder and louder over the next decades by groups which in fact wanted religion isolated from the public order. Jefferson had indeed used the phrase in a letter he had written to Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut in 1802. As Professor Robert L. Cord of Northeastern University has pointed out, in his scholarly study, Separation of Church and State, Historical Fact and Current Fiction, Jefferson plainly spoke of the wall 
as meaning the barring of federal action, which would create a national religion or ban freedom of worship. He was no advocate of the absolute separation of church and state or separation of religion from the public order. As Cord points out, had that been so, he would never have made a treaty with the Kaskaskia Indians a year after the letter to the Danbury Baptists pleading federal money to build them a Roman Catholic Church and to support their priest. Of course, as we have seen, American public policy from the beginning had not been one of absolute separation. But in 1947, back to that interesting year, secularists hailed the black essay and have been pounding it home in court cases ever since and in the media. But wait, didn't I say that the school district won this case and that Archie Everson lost? Indeed, yes. Black's long essay on church-state separation was only what lawyers call dictum, that is, in the words of the dictionary, a judicial opinion on a point other than the precise issue involved in determining a case. Dictum coming from the Supreme Court is high-grade stuff. Certainly it is. But still only dictum, only an essay. Now let's contrast that with what we call the holding of the case as contrasted with dictum, the actual decision, or who got what. The decision was that tax funds could be used to provide transportation to children attending religious schools. Now, following his long essay on the wall of separation, Black pointed to the other part of the First Amendment's religion clause. It's important for us to quote him. Here's what he said. On the other hand, other language of the amendment commands that New Jersey cannot hamper its citizens in the free exercise of their own religion. Consequently, it cannot exclude individual Catholics, Lutherans, Mohammedans, Baptists, Jews, Methodists, non-believers, Presbyterians, or the members of any other faith because of their faith or lack of it from receiving the benefits of public welfare legislation. That other language of the First Amendment was, of course, the Free Exercise Clause. Everson, therefore, is our starting point in discussing what was long popularly called the parochial school aid question, but more rightly is called the issue of economic justice to parents exercising a religious choice for the schooling of their children. Parochial isn't the right word anyhow, since in the 1990s, not only Catholic, but also Evangelical Protestant and Orthodox Jewish parents are involved in the quest for economic justice in education. But it will be useful to your understanding of the half century of Supreme Court decisions involving state aid in support of parental choice of religious schools to make yourself an outline of the cases we'll now take up. You'll see they fall into two columns, A, dictum, B, holding. If you later decide to really read these cases, we'll list the citations to them at the end of this session. Meanwhile, let's start down the two lists. First, the cases in which the Supreme Court chose to follow the holding of Everson, favoring religious liberty through parental aid, and those which it chose to follow its dictum, its essay in favor of absolute church-state separation. 
So this takes us first to the Allen case, Board of Education versus Allen, where in 1966, parents of children attending Catholic parochial schools found that their local public school board had refused to comply with a new statute of the state of New York, allowing public school districts to lend secular textbooks to private, including religious, school children. The school board, relying on the Everson dictum, had sued to have the textbook loan program declared unconstitutional. Supporting the school board and opposing the parents were ACLU and eight major Jewish organizations. The Supreme Court of the United States, by a vote of six to three, upheld the providing of textbook loans to children in religious schools. The court stood firmly on the Everson holding, not the dictum, on the holding, and was not moved by the argument that, while bus rides had no religious significance, textbooks, even secular ones, would be used to assist in the overall mission of the Catholic school. The Supreme Court went on to say, no funds or books are furnished to parochial schools, and the financial benefit is to parents and children, not to schools. Here is a key point. The court is now saying again that no one can be excluded on the basis of his or her religion from the benefits of public welfare legislation. But it's also making a new point of immense importance. It is inferring that while government may not subsidize religious schools, it may provide benefits to parents and to children individually useful to the education of the latter in such schools. The Allen decision was 1968. Now in the meantime, Catholics in Pennsylvania, relying on the Everson holding and on the Allen decision, had campaigned intensively for what they believed was another logical consequence of those cases. If there could be no religious exclusion from the benefits of public welfare legislation, and if the real beneficiaries of a public expenditure were children, and relatedly their parents, and if a state could constitutionally lend secular textbooks to religious school children, why could not a state underwrite other educational services to such children, provided those services were also secular? The Pennsylvanians added a further point. It had long been held that government could purchase health and child care services from religious hospitals or child care agencies. Why not educational services for children? Finally, the Pennsylvanians noted that in a case about public school Bible reading in 1963, the Supreme Court had held that legislation challenged under the Establishment Clause would be upheld if it had a secular purpose and a primary effect which did not advance religion. So Pennsylvania adopted a law whereby the state would purchase educational services from all private schools, including religious private schools, secular educational services in math, modern foreign languages, physical science, physical education, with a provision forbidding the introducing of any religious content into the instruction in those courses. This met all the constitutional criteria 
thus far laid down by the Supreme Court. It was public welfare legislation. Its real beneficiaries were children. It had a secular purpose, was totally silent on religion, and no more advanced religion than did the textbook loan program. Pennsylvania's program was attacked in court immediately after being signed into law. The case was known as Lemon versus Kurtzman. Supporters of freedom in education nationally were entitled to feel upbeat as that challenge came to be headed to the Supreme Court of the United States. A lower federal court upheld the constitutionality of the act, relying precisely on the points I have just recited. On June 28, 1971, the Supreme Court announced a truly revolutionary decision, striking down the Pennsylvania Act by a vote of 7 to 2. The court's opinion carried the Everson separationist dictum to a length undreamt of, and in doing so it wrote astonishing new constitutional doctrine. It did not meet one of the arguments based on its prior holdings and raised in the defense of the act. Instead, it jumped to new ground, now simply inventing doctrine to suit its purpose. This doctrine is called by the name entanglement, a brand new term, never before used by the court as the basis for a decision, nowhere found in the Constitution. It was the brainchild of Harvard Law professor Paul Freund, who had published an article in Harvard Law Review on public aid to parochial schools, in which he warned that such aid was the product of political entanglements, that is, lobbying by Catholic citizens and the Catholic Church for educational justice to parents. Freund's article was bare of any reference to history or to precedent. It was simply one law professor's opinion. Here is how the court used that personal opinion to strike down Pennsylvania's act. It said the act gave rise to two kinds of entanglements, administrative and political. The court's treatment of each of those was a remarkable piece of blatant anti-Catholic bias. Administrative entanglements. As to the four subjects, math, modern foreign languages, physical science, physical education, these are not religious subjects and are not taught as such as the court ought to have known, and a teacher in an aided school would violate the act by introducing religious content in any of the four courses. Ah, but the court said teachers in Catholic schools could not be trusted to obey the law. Since Catholic schools are an integral part of the religious mission of the Catholic Church, their teachers, said the court, will inevitably experience great difficulty in remaining religiously neutral even with the best of intentions. A still broader attack on the Catholic Church is seen in the court's second branch of entanglement, what it called political entanglement. The court correctly said that legislation such as the Pennsylvania Act must have entailed much political activity both for and against it. Of course it had. Many people, the court said, confronted with issues of this kind will find their votes aligned with their faith. Ordinarily, said the court, vigorous political debate and division are normal in a democracy. But now, quoting Freund, the court stated its incredibly bigoted conclusion that, as it put it, political division along religious lines 
was one of the principal evils against which the First Amendment was intended to protect. Therefore, the effort of Catholics, Orthodox Jews, and Evangelical Protestant citizens to have engaged in the democratic process to achieve passage of the Pennsylvania Act was not merely evil, it was in the class of the principal, principal evils against which the First Amendment is intended to protect. From their graves, Voltaire and the other leaders of the Enlightenment must have cheered. The court said that religion's raising its head in the political order is a threat to the normal political process. And while the court expressly accused partisans of parochial schools, i.e. Catholics, of having constituted that threat in campaigning for the Pennsylvania Act, its reasoning extended, though nobody called attention to that fact, to all religious groups who promote political action to achieve their goals. The Israel Lobby, the National Council of Churches, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the United Methodist Church, all appear frequently in the political arena. And in American history, the abolitionist, prohibitionist, and civil rights movements must, in the court's reasoning, all be considered as threatening to the normal political process. The official Catholic reaction to Lemon was one of disappointment over the loss of funding, but it failed to indict the chief vice of the Lemon decision, its patently anti-Catholic bias. The Pennsylvania legislature bounced back strongly after Lemon versus Kurtzman. It enacted a law for the loan of instructional equipment to private, including religious schools, and the providing auxiliary services, remedial testing, speech, and hearing services to children in such schools. Going back to the Lemon case, you may recall that the Supreme Court made many assumptions without any facts to go on. One of these was the assumption that teachers in Catholic schools could not be trusted to obey the Act's requirement that they keep religious content out of the instruction. The court didn't know that at all. This was just guesswork, prejudiced guesswork. There was nothing in the record to substantiate that point. Pennsylvania's new Act was challenged in court on Establishment Clause grounds. The case was Meek versus Pittenger. On the trial, witness after witness who had been rendering auxiliary services to children under the Act, under on Catholic school premises, were cross-examined on their experience, in particular, their trustworthiness to adhere to the Act's barring of religious indoctrination. Let me present you one of those witnesses, Miss. Pauline Stopper, a state-certified speech therapist offering speech therapy in a Catholic school under the new act. Question, Miss Stopper, what's your religious affiliation? Answer, I'm Catholic. Miss Stopper, is it your understanding that under this act, there are any restraints respecting introduction of religion in your speech therapy services? Yes, I understand the legal restraints. I have sat through several meetings where we were told of these restraints. Ms. Stopper, as a public employee, do you consider yourself bound to obey the laws of the Commonwealth and the state and federal constitutions? I do. Have you introduced religious ideas, materials, or subject matter into your services? Not in any way. When the case came before the Supreme Court, 
It simply ignored that evidence. It simply ignored that vital part of the record. The court responded to all of this by saying whether the subject is remedial reading, advanced reading, or simply reading, a teacher remains a teacher, and the danger that religious doctrine will become intertwined with secular instruction persists. The likelihood of inadvertent fostering of religion may be less in a remedial arithmetic class than in a medieval history seminar, but a diminished probability of impermissible conduct is not sufficient. Here I cannot but mention unhappily a brief filed by the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith and four other national Jewish organizations conveying the same incredible message. The brief recited, how can there be assurance that a teacher teaching mathematics in a Catholic parochial school will not use the rosary beads for teaching counting? And in respect to loans of educational equipment, the brief says, such equipment can be used to construct crosses, crucifixes, and altars, and it is a fair guess that in many church schools they are used for exactly these purposes. Imagine this if you know Catholic schools. Thomas Nast, the anti-Catholic cartoonist of a century ago, could not have done worse. But let me mention a somewhat ludicrous sequel to the Meek decision. Pennsylvania then enacted, after the act was struck down, a new auxiliary services statute for the providing of services only on Catholic school premises or in vans parked near the forbidden religious school premises. So all over Pennsylvania, you could thereafter see these strange mobile classrooms, nonsense responding to nonsense, costly motorized establishments to protect Americans from a religious establishment. But the will to obtain economic freedom of religious choice and education, though doused, was not drowned. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, a program of secular education, given mostly through publicly financed public school programs, had been a roaring success for nine years. But wait, this program for the general public benefit was taking place on religious, mostly Catholic school premises. The Supreme Court held it to violate the Establishment Clause for two reasons. One, by the very fact that public school teachers were serving on Catholic school premises, they might, said the court, become involved intentionally or inadvertently in inculcating religious tenets or beliefs. Like the teachers in Lemon, therefore, they must be held to be either stupid, deceitful, or fanatical. Second, the programs, said the court, may provide a crucial symbolic link between government and religion, thereby enlisting, at least in the eyes of impressionable youngsters, the power of government to the support of the religious denomination operating the school. Remember those phrases about impressionable youngsters and crucial symbolic link. We're going to come to those later. The imaginings of the Supreme Court, for that's what they were, about the untrustworthiness of teachers on Catholic school premises was pushed one step further into unreality and reflected even deeper prejudice in the 1985 case known as Aguilar versus Felton. Aguilar versus Felton.
Here the wall of separation dictum becomes especially oppressive. New York City had had a program for 19 years under Title I of the Federal Elementary and Secondary Education Act of paying public employees to offer on non-public school premises supplemental education programs, for example, remedial reading, guidance counseling, etc., to educationally deprived children from low-income families. 84% of the schools involved were Catholic, 8% Hebrew. The Supreme Court avoided the program, and in doing so said the program was alive with dangers of what it called a subtle, overt presence of religious matters. Worse, administrative personnel of the public and parochial school system must work together in resolving scheduling and other administrative matters. Here, the court said, was a contaminating form of entanglement. Four justices dissented. Among these, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who called the decision tragic. As we proceed to consider the cases which followed the Everson ultra-separation dictum, we should be aware that the Everson holding, reasonable economic accommodation to religious liberty, had not been entirely lost sight of by the court. In 1983, by a vote of five to four, the court held that Minnesota's income tax law, giving tax breaks to parents for educational expenses incurred in having their children in private, including religious schools, did not violate the Establishment Clause. The case is Miller versus Allen. Let's take a closer look at these tax breaks. First, the parents, in computing their state income tax, could deduct expenses for tuition, textbooks except religious, transportation, and physical educational clothing. Second, the deduction was available to both private and public school parents. The court said that this deduction, as it put it, fairly equalizes the tax burdens of citizens and encourages desirable expenditures for educational purposes. It noted that in both Everson and Allen, the benefit programs had not singled out parents of religious school children, but included all school children. The court noted that, as in both of those cases, the assistance was through individual parents. Did not the Minnesota program, however, have the same economic effect in benefiting the religious schools as a direct subsidy to them would have had? Thus was not the Establishment Clause violated, and to this the Supreme Court responded. It is true, of course, the court said, that financial assistance provided to parents ultimately has an economic effect comparable to that aid given directly to the schools attended by their children. It is also true, however, that under Minnesota's arrangement, public funds become available only as the result of numerous private choices of individual parents of school-aged children. Therefore, reasoned the court, the benefits carried no imprimatur of state approval. The court summed up. The historic purposes of the Establishment Clause simply do not encompass the sort of attenuated financial benefit ultimately controlled by the private choices of individual parents and ultimately flowing to parochial schools from the neutrally available tax benefit at issue in this case. 
We're now therefore seeing a clear conflict in decisions, a conflict between secularist and enlightenment thinking and ideas of justice and rationality. The Miller case was 1983, but you have seen that two years later, the 5-4 decision in the Aguilar case bespoke the opposite doctrine of the Everson dictum. Now, one year after that, comes the case of one Larry Winters. Mr. Winters was a blind young man who sought payments of government money for his education at Island Empire School of the Bible. The payments were attacked as violating the Establishment Clause. The Supreme Court, in deciding the case, returned to the Everson holding. The payments, it said, were not a direct state subsidy to the Bible School. They were instead, like the payments in Everson, a public welfare benefit available to individuals without regard to the sectarian or non-sectarian nature of the institution thus benefited. Surprisingly, 1993 saw a further unshackling of the secularist dictum of Everson. You'll recall that in Aguilar, the court had held that public school teachers could not, because of the Establishment Clause, come on religious, mostly Catholic school premises to offer remedial help to poor kids. You'll pardon me now if I indulge in a personal narrative because I think it so well illustrates the value of courage and persistence in the pursuit of justice by a valiant woman in Tucson, Arizona. Mrs. Sandra Zobrest had a son, Jimmy, who was profoundly deaf from birth. She enrolled him in South Point Catholic High School in Tucson. Mrs. Zobrest had found that there was in existence the Federal Education for the Handicapped Act, which provided a federal state program whereby disabled children, handicapped children, could be provided certain benefits. Among those benefits was the supplying of a sign language interpreter to a deaf child. Mrs. Zobrest felt that her son was covered by the act, and she therefore asked the school district to provide the service. It refused, citing Lemon versus Kurtzman, Grand Rapids, all the dictum decisions deriving from the bad dictum in Everson. She then sought to pursue the case further. The Attorney General of Arizona agreed with the school district solicitor and said this benefit may not be provided. And at that point, Mrs. Obrest asked that I do what I could for them. And it seemed to me that the only alternative then was to file suit in the U.S. District Court at Tucson, a suit for an injunction to command the school district to perform its duty under the act as we saw it. That proved futile, flying to Tucson to argue in the court. I was told by the judge that I was limited to 15 minutes after flying halfway across the country to argue the case. The school district had meanwhile, believing the case to be of constitutional importance, had retained a senior partner of the law firm of Senator De Concini. The district court immediately dismissed our claim. We took an appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which a year and a half later heard the case at Pasadena, California. And there, the court ruled again against providing the service for Jim. This time, 
It was notable to me that the strong antagonism of Judge Stephen Reinhardt was a material factor in our defeat. Judge Reinhardt was later to achieve a degree of fame by being the judge who wrote the astonishing opinion upholding assisted suicide in the Glucksburg case, which we'll discuss later in 1996. The other adverse factor advanced by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in throwing out Mrs. Zobrist's claim was that the presence of a sign language interpreter on religious school premises would constitute a symbolic union of church and state that those impressionable youngsters, when we were talking about the Grand Rapids case a few minutes ago, they would see in the presence of this sign language interpreter paid for by the public, a union of church and state. So we decided to try to get the U.S. Supreme Court to review the case, and it agreed to review it. Its decision was splendid. But an amusing detail of the argument before the court was what I felt was humor that had to be indulged in. Namely, I was picturing to the court a scene in Chem Lab at South Point Catholic High School where some impressionable youngster in Jimmy's class is pointing to the sign language interpreter working with Jimmy and saying, in effect, guys, look at that. It's like awesome. We are seeing the Constitution of the United States being violated here in our own chem lab. That produced laughter in the court. It's a risky tactic. But it did put in focus the inanity of the court's decisions in the Lemon and Aguilar and Grand Rapids cases. Well, the decision came down, and it seemed to me to lay the groundwork then for what should follow. And in June 1997, all of this interpretation of the Establishment Clause in reference to aid to school choice by parents was affirmed by the Supreme Court's decision in Agostini versus Felton, a superb decision in terms of religious liberty. The court in Agostini decided to take a new look at its decision in the Aguilar case, which I was talking about a few moments ago, focusing mainly on its Zobrest decision, that is, the decision about the deaf boy. It held Aguilar and Grand Rapids, and to a considerable extent, Meek, to be no longer good law, as the court put it. The Agostini rule the rule derived from the Agostinian Zobrest decisions, applies not only to education, but should be interpreted to apply to health and welfare benefits. I think that rule can be summarized as follows. Government may afford material aid to individuals exercising a choice to be served by religious institutions where the individual and not the institution is the primary beneficiary of that aid. The programs must provide benefits to a broad class of citizens and be religiously neutral. That is to say, not be primarily religious in character, create no greater or broader benefits to recipients who apply their aid in religious institutions, and not limit the benefits in part or whole to persons choosing such institutions. Well, let me turn your mind back to the Lemon and Meek decisions. Remember the testimony in the Meek case of Miss Pauline Stopper and how the Supreme Court held in effect 
that such sensible and honest testimony could not be believed? Remember the kooky notion that kids seeing a publicly paid sign language interpreter helping a deaf boy on parochial school premises would see in that a symbolic union of church and state? Well, all of that nonsense is expressly wiped out in the opinion of the court in the Agostini case. The court has at last purged itself of such bigoted nonsense in cases affecting religious freedom of choice and education. Let's hope that changes in court membership will not disturb the Agostini ruling. In our next session, we're going to come to an equally interesting aspect of religious liberty in the United States, religious liberty and freedom of conscience and intellect. And this will obviously also involve education, religion, and the courts. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.